but I think that as one starts to uncover the hidden agendas, we're not trying to get rid of them, you know, the hidden expectations. We're not trying to get rid of anything, but we are trying to see them clearly and not um, be oppressed by them. And it takes that willingness to keep getting fooled by it, right? You just keep getting fooled by having an agenda and expectation and then being disappointed and wondering, like, you, haven't, you have enough time to be able to feel the disappointment and to feel the betrayal or whatever it is. Um, and then enough time to understand that we've been trying to control and we've been pretending that we haven't been wanting to control. (laughs) We're really good at that. There is a great quotation from Krishnamurti's early journals where he said, just to be vulnerable, just to be sensitive, like that new green leaf, that was born yesterday, that will face rain, wind, darkness, and light. That's what he called meditation. And we really, I think we have learned to hate vulnerability. We think it's weak. We're taught it's weak. And actually being vulnerable without um, mindfulness or loving kindness of the other Brahma Viharas is um, overwhelming. I had a very um, big surprise later in my practice life, but you know now it's like probably eighteen years. No, maybe more like fifteen years ago. But um, after a few years of teaching in Burma, I met a sayadaw, an an abbot at a monastery. That just uh, it wasn't so much that I knew that he was fully enlightened, but uh, he was so much fun. And he was so serious. And that's so paradoxical. And it never seemed like um, paradoxical when you were with him. Uh, But somehow he had mastered that to become seamless. And he died in November, um, last November. And it, um, it's still quite uh, moving for me that, um, that I had such a, the gift of connecting with him. And as he got older, um, particularly if we didn't have a translator that Uh, didn't understand us, uh, the depth of (laughs) how I think some of us born in the West are. um, Just, it's just like the complexities of us. Uh, You know, there were a few years where we actually had a translator that um, was really good. And it's not like the translator we had after that wasn't, but it was like a few years where uh, it was very rich. So at that time period, uh, I asked him about his practice. And at that time period, 
And for many years, I think when that when these practices were brought from Asia to so-called West, um, there was so much emphasis on wisdom and a kind of intellectual emptiness. Um, that something like the Four Guardian Meditations was, you know, it wasn't even taught, but if it was, it was such a... a If you don't talk about something enough, even if you don't say it, you're not getting the impression it's important, right? Um, so being with him, it was like that's all he did for so many years of his life. And then, I mean, he became a monk at seven or nine in that area when there were still tigers there. And, you know, there's some amazing stories, but... Um, it seemed like even in his last years he were doing he was doing these practices that again we I sort of got the impression were just like you know at at the least they were preliminary preliminary you know don't even really bother with these much you know so and of course things have changed since that time and, you know, listening to how he did these practices, when I did read about them in the Vasudhimaga, this book that describes um, some of these practices, or, you know, hearing some of these teachings over time, he did them very um, uniquely. So I'm not going to go into all of it, but... Uh, for example, the first, the first guardian meditation is reflecting on the virtues of the Buddha. And there's a lot of them. You know, <laughs> you know it's really a lot of virtues. And um, these virtues, when you read about them or hear them from that context, uh, there's so much reverence. Um, and when I would hear that, or I imagine when a lot of people heard it, coming from our Judeo-Christian, a lot of us background, at that time period again, um, it almost seemed like overwhelming. You know, just that it was unattainable. It was just seemed so far away to, like, perfect everything. You know, to perfect patience, <laughs> for example. You know, <laughs> that's one of my weak ones. You know, but to perfect loving kindness, compassion, wisdom, you know, but just there's lots and lots of virtues. Um, and maybe he was just tuning into that when he told me about it, but he described how he built this pagoda up on this hill, you know, in back of the monastery, but it's a hill. And he, it's, 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 white, it's not whitewashed like most of the pagodas in that area. Um, and there's lots of these white, beautiful pagodas. His is a beautiful light blue. And when you go in the pagoda, um, you walk through, and there's a, another... Um, it's like there's a moat around it. And so it's, it's not like the steps when you walk through at the back are continual. There's a gap, and then there are these little steps up to this exquisite little white marble Buddha that has you know, this smile on its face that, again, is very unusual. It's a real smile. <laughs> you know, it's not, not a light smile, and it's not that most of the Buddha's serenity, the smile is serene. But this has a little bit more. Um, and he spent years sitting there looking at this Buddha. You know, there's a little um, door that you open, and he um, said that... in when he did this first guardian meditation, he would look at the Buddha and say to himself, um, worthiness. And then he would feel his body. He would just go back inward within, feel his body, mind, heart, and he would say, worthiness. For years. So that it, he he really took in that he was worthy to be fully enlightened. 
it's like there wasn't no distinction, right? That's how that's how these old practices work. The concentration is that um, you finally um, there's no feeling of the Buddha or me. It's just worthiness. And I mean, I could give you so many examples of way we feel often unworthy. Uh, but I have a friend that is an acupuncturist, um, and uh, maybe two springs ago. I went to see him, and he has an incredible garden in Massachusetts. And in the spring, it's truly magnificent. It's just a magnificent garden. And he started to show me around, and he turned around. He's a little, I think, older than me. And he said, I feel so unworthy to have this garden. Like, I don't deserve it. And I was like, oh, you know, just, that's so painful. And it's often how we feel. It's like, if we get our food and we really take time to it, do, do we really feel worthy to receive that food? But it's this, this feeling worthy to be fully enlightened. Whew. And to, to see that it's like totally, not only explained or, you know, but it's, it's like treated like this practice that's not important. So I felt like he gave me a transmission and not just for me, you know, and then we continued. It was like, whoa, that was helpful. <laughs> you know, that, was an, that would have been plenty. But then I got so interested because it was so different. I said, um, okay, next, 32 parts of the body. That's a difficult one, man. You know, it's like the teaching, and I won't go into it all, but basically you're, you're going within and you're, you're visualizing all the hair in your body or all the bones the skeleton, you know, the blood, the pus, you know, there's 32 of them you're going through. And, um, you know, if you get a bunch of us, I, I don't like to say West or East anymore. It's more like modern, really modern. Uh, often so much aversion to the body, to our body is there anyway. And if, again, if you start with that or if you even mention it, and, you know, people are sitting there contemplating pus in their body for an hour, then they go back to work. For most people, it, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not kidding, but it's like it doesn't often help. It can actually reinforce the aversion. Um, so I asked him about this one, and he, I'm sure he's done such extensive work with that one but he said and he's so funny like he's like oh yeah I did that one for a long time until I saw skeletons everywhere you know he said everybody every being not just human I just would see as a skeleton <laughs> you know and then and then he and then he said uh, you know I would then shift to Vipassana notice notice go back to my body notice the physical sensations this was what was different also rather than just concentration He'd go back, feel the physical sensations, and notice them disappear. So I, I didn't, I can't go into this extensively either, but it was quite moving. Again, such a different take on it. And then, um, so I started to tell him, well, you know, and a lot of us, um, that one is particularly hard. And he, really started laughing and he's like oh no 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 aversion he's like okay 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 and and so say my hand is metta my hand is the awareness of metta and i and he said oh metta 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 you know it's like these practices kind of go back and forth right worthiness say skeleton worthiness skeletons metta and he just did this this is how you do metta. And then he started laughing, ha, ha, ha. And then he's like... <laughs> but see, look at that. 
you know, just, just, it's just a showering, an infusion of loving kindness. It's not intellectual at all, not words. This guy is happy. You know, I mean, then we nicknamed him the happy Sayadaw, but he's the happiest human being I've ever seen. And it's what the Buddha was teaching. So, of course, we're not expecting you to sit here all day going like this, but it's to get a sense that... um, to be able to start to get that you can. And then the last one uh, is reflecting on death. And I asked him how he did that practice, and he said, on the in-breath, I just say, everyone I know is going to die. And on my out-breath I say, and I too will die. But then there was that pause, and then he said, and you know what? (laughs) And you know what? No, what? And he said, when I die, I'm not going to be surprised. And it, you know, it's just so infectious. It's infectious. That is not morose. And the other thing that I want to just mention about him as I got to know him over some years was just the sense of that when he has a chair that is like you lean, he leans way back in it. It's not flat, but boy, when he meditates... You know, and that thing it looks pretty relaxing to me, you know. Um, <laughs> but when you come in the room, and he, if, he, if he engages someone, and it's not, you know, if there's a question, he'll talk. He's not just going to chat, but if there's a question, he'll talk. And then he's just like this. You know, just really connected, really focused on, you know, it's translation, but very focused on the person. And then when the question's over, he's like this. (laughs) And then if there's a question, he'll come up and he'll sort of go like this. (laughs) And then he's back. And it's... um, such a transmission. Totally connects when he connects and really goes deep within when he's not doing that. Totally connected deep within. And uh, do we value both? And that's what's so interesting, right? We often feel like deep within, it's like, is it selfish? And then the whole question when we start approaching the four Brahma-viharas, the the loving-kindness, the compassion, the empathetic joy, the equanimity, the Buddha taught four, not one. If you just learn one, you're missing the whole point. If you're learning just to be kind without equanimity, forget it. too hard because there's this range of joy and sorrow in this world that's one big thing if you open and you open um, you're not getting to pick and choose oh I'm just going to open to the pleasant you know it's not like that you open to the pain pleasure neutral and you have to be strong enough for it what's strong good question so is numb strong? If you don't have mindfulness or kindness, numb is not a bad defense. I wish I had had more of it a lot of my life. 
you know. It's an emotion. I love it when people are like, I'm not emotional. You know, it's like, oh. <laughs> it's numb as an emotion. So it's, it's like, and I'm saying I wish I had more of that, so it's not like I'm putting it down at all. I think it's a great defense. Um, so, so, so where, where to begin with this? It's like when we learn loving kindness, unconditional, you start to see what? Unfortunately, or fortunately, you start to see more of the conditional. So if, you know, it's like, and how do you deal with that without the Vipassana mindfulness practice? You can't. The love without the wisdom, unconditional love requires enough wisdom. In fact, my definition of it is loving kindness is love infused with wisdom. Because otherwise, we the motivation, if the motivation for love doesn't have wisdom, it's just we're using the kindness to control. Oh, I'll be kind to that sleepy does. <laughs> but the motivation, maybe in that moment, is to get rid of it. I do this a lot with knee pain or back pain. It's like, oh, I'm going to show up for that. No problem. And it, you know, it might be for the first few minutes is loving kindness, and then it invisibly seeps into, if I just stay here a little bit longer, maybe, maybe then it's going to go away, right? It's just like, it's what happens sometimes, because, you know, you can't necessarily maintain it. And at that point, I, I move my attention somewhere else. Because I don't want to reinforce the aversion. Very important. Because, you know, when you think, when you're staying, especially a chronic pain or a mental pain or an emotional pain, it can be fear, anger, loneliness, knee pain, whatever it is. But whatever it is, if you're, if you're connecting with it, with the motivation of trying to get rid of it, <coughs> You're just reinforcing wanting to get rid of it. And it takes enough quiet to, to be able to see it. Because sometimes the motivation is just, oh, I really want to feel kindness toward this. And see what happens. But then if you're disappointed that the pain didn't go away, then it's usually a sign there was an agenda or an expectation. And of course, if you're disappointed, which we do get, then it's great. Oh, wow, I'm learning something. If you're disappointed, it's something to learn from. I would call wisdom the perfection of disappointment, actually. (laughs) Okay, let's go into that a little more. Why? Okay, and this is why we need the wisdom practice. If you're trying to be with the breath, usually the beginning part of practice for some years is you start to see that you want to control it. So if you're with anything, say you use sound as an anchor, over time you're going to start to see that you're going to want to control it. The idea of the Vipassana practice is if you learn to connect with something in the present moment, one of the things you're supposed to see is that if you connect with it, you're going to want to control it. How else are you going to learn about peace? Peace is the ending of the controller and the controlled. If there's a controller, there has to be a controlled. And that's violence. And when we start to practice, it's like, and you start seeing that you, you know, wouldn't it be nice if this breath was a little little bit deeper? Or let me try to make it, boy, I can't feel it. Maybe I'll do something to make it more visible. You see? Rather than, wow, maybe I can just be with it vague. Or just be with it tight, and I'm. It doesn't have to be the breath. Of course, it could be anything. 
there, there was a woman that uh, years ago came to um, the retreat in Burma, and I didn't know her, and she wrote me some emails, and she wanted to, to ordain as a nun, and she wanted to come early. She wanted, she wanted, she wanted, she wanted, she wanted. And I kept writing back and saying, I really think you should wait till the retreat starts. I really think you should not ordain. And, you know, and she didn't listen to me at all. And so when the, I got there and the retreat started, and, you know, I walked in the retreat, and she, the monastery, and she was furious at me. Furious, and she's like, "I didn't come all the way to Burma to hear the noises coming from the village and the loudspeaker." You know, you know they have parties. You know, you can hear sound sometime. And she was so angry. And you know, I wanted, you know, I just wanted to say, "I told you so," but I didn't. You know, that doesn't help, right? <laughs> Oh, sometimes it's so tempting, you know. It would feel so good. <laughs> but it never works. Um, so anyway, you know, over that next three weeks, it's like, oh, she suffered so much around not being able to control that sound. And she didn't come to Burma for that. She came for peace. Right? But just look at today, where you were upset, or yesterday, or two weeks ago. It's the same thing. I didn't show up this lifetime for this knee pain. You know, I, I wanted a party, whatever, you know, whatever it is. But you t- we don't, actually, we don't actually even know why we showed up, probably, really. <laughs> you know, it's, and, and it's still like conception, you know, how does that happen? You know, it's kind of amazing. Uh, and it's like that ability to start practicing enough to go, maybe I'm here for freedom. But I'm not sure I like this practice, right? It's hard. Because it's about freedom. And it's about seeing all these ways that we are that aren't really that nice. And of course, you know, my favorite joke is to say, you know, who would volunteer? Who would volunteer to have their mind broadcast for... 45 minutes during the sitting. (laughs) Not even the Dalai Lama would. And people have this idea that his mind might be different, but it's the same body, same mind, same heart. It's like the same weird thought patterns. And then when you get, you know when you get a little sleepy and you get those weirdo things, it's like... This, toward the end of my retreat this year, I kept having, it's so weird, I kept having this huge image of a hippopotamus, like a face. It wasn't the whole, just a face. And, and I kept thinking, you know, I'm fighting it, right? Why is this damn hippopotamus face in my sittings, you know? And why is it repeating? You know, why, 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 why? And it's like, when I finally stopped being bothered by it, it disappeared. I mean... It was blue. <laughs> what? You know, but where did it come from? You know, you can get into this whole thing. I'm sure, you know, I could get a PhD in why it's there. But, you know, it, if you're not bothered by it, it's not a problem. It's just an image coming and going. But it shows us, you know, wow, it's just not personal. And there's so much that we can't control. I couldn't control that that image came. Try to control your thoughts. You know, you'll be a wreck. A wreck. It takes so much energy to even pay attention to thought. It's not an anchor. It's too hard. In fact, all that we're teaching you to do is to try to anchor away from it anchor away from it. It's the only way to get enough space to finally see it clearly. And then to have this practice that you can actually be kind to it. You can actually 
<laughs> wherever you feel that. Some people feel them out here. Some people feel them out there. Some people feel them in there. Wherever you do, notice it. You could notice them here. It doesn't matter. But what matters is, are we free? So as you start doing the loving-kindness practice, the Buddha said that there are near and far enemies to each of the Brahma-viharas. And um, it's not the greatest translation, and yet what they mean is um, the near enemy of loving-kindness, the experience that seems so much like unconditional love, but isn't, are often many forms of attached love. Nostalgia, sentimentality, you know, being in love, that any kind of attached love. And it, be, I have to be careful already. It's like I want to say, this does not mean they're wrong or bad. It means that they're not unconditional. So... Na- naivete, did I say that one? Naivete, you know, the, the polyanimata. There's so many different kinds. And we'll get to experience, ex- um, experience them as we do the practice. The opposite of loving kindness is anger. It doesn't mean when we hear that, that it means it's bad or wrong. It just means that it's the opposite of the unconditional. So if, if you're doing the metta practice, I found it was like a rotor-rooter, really. I felt, for me, it was more intense than Vipassana. For other people, it won't be. For some people, it's the opposite. Um, but however it works, um, if you don't have enough mindfulness <laughs> when you're doing the loving-kindness to deal with those things that come up, that are meant to come up when you do these practices, it's really hard. Because how is it going to shift from conditional to unconditional? How is it going to transform without being interested in the experience and being able to really experience it? When I first did this practice, it was very, uh, very um, kind of a strict form. And when I was doing the walking meditation, uh, I mentioned this before, but I would take my point A to point B, and I would kind of imagine the person standing at the end, and we weren't given any options of how to do this practice. It was benefactor yourself, benefactor... And for me, I did that for a month before I was allowed to move on to dear friend, you know, neutral, difficult. It was a whole uh, very strict form. Um, So when I was allowed to move on to the dear friend... I was, I was doing this dear friend. And gradually I just kept, I started to get angrier and angrier and angrier at the person to the point where I was going, and remember the time that I'm like, and it was just like, wow, it was so intense. And I was like, I thought I liked this person. And luckily you have, you know, a whole day and then another day and I'm going back and forth. And finally it was like, oh, all the things I didn't like about myself. It was horrible. Shocking. Really painful. You know, so you, so of course, you know, you go into the metta retreat and you think, oh, ah, (laughs) ah, finally a metta retreat, you know, and yet it was so painful at times. And I'm not saying it was painful all the time, but it was just really painful to see that that's how I really, (laughs) you know, all this hidden stuff that I had with this friend. And as we, you know, we often joked, you know, it's just like, um, in that system, it's like the dear friend 
you start seeing that they move to the difficult category <laughs> like in a second, you know, and then you're in the difficult, yourself, I finally realized that I was my most difficult. Interesting. So... And I wanted to mention the kind of way that metta can be when you're on retreat, that it's just so also in the opposite way powerful, not just purifying, but there might be times where you're walking and you feel so utterly connected to the earth. Or you have some moments where you really do feel metta for yourself. You really do feel it. Or, you know, it's like you have these breakthroughs that that just can increase, um, and you can't make them happen. But when, you, when they do happen, and you do understand, for example, um, for me, you know, self-hatred can be such a harsh um, patterning. And when I realized it was just a defense... It didn't stop the pattern entirely by any means. But when I would start on that kind of self-hatred thought pattern, sometimes I was able to start going, oh, wow, this is a defense, and talk myself through it. Like, oh, what? (laughs) You know, like, okay. You know, it's a defense. What is it a defense for? You know, I used to write these things down and read it. It was such a hard pattern for me to understand. And then finally it was like, okay, Michelle, it's a defense against what? Vulnerability. That I can't control what happened. I can't control what's going to happen. I mean, you can do the best you can. But so much of the self-hatred is that we think we can control That we should be able to control. And it's so connected to doubt, right? If you think you can control, then of course you're going to have doubt. So the more you believe it, the more, of course, you have to have all these defense systems because you believe it. And that that the gift of the metta practice, the loving kindness, the compassion, the empathetic joy, the equanimity, and the vipassana, when they start... um, being skills that you can bring to the present moment. Um, You start understanding that we're all afraid of vulnerability. That the vulnerability of not being able to control... And if if you really looked at that that joke I have about having your mind broadcast, even for five minutes, you'd never show your face in the room again, right? You know, it's just, it would be so humiliating. If you really take that to heart, then you would have so much compassion for us. It's, it's just heartbreaking what the human mind really is like. Otherwise, everyone would volunteer, right? Like, no problem. Have your mind broadcast. But just the level of judgment, just if you took judgment. And, and the practice is not to get rid of it or to feel ashamed of it or to analyze it. It's like, just walk in the hall, walk up those steps, and look at everybody's shoes, and see the judgments. You can fall in love with somebody over a pair of shoes in a Vipassana retreat or Metta (laughs) retreat. You have a story about everyone already. And you can hate somebody by the way they have their shoes. Maybe they didn't put them right, 
And then you start checking them out, like the rest, every day. It's like, oh, you know, I don't like their shoes. I don't like the way they walk. I don't, you know, it's just like crazy. Um, But that's the normal, what we call normal neurotic is how the human mind is because it's not trained. And this gets back to what we're emphasizing. It's like, if you have an untrained mind, there's going to be extreme suffering. Because you walk up and you see, you can't control that there's a judgment. You can't. Check it out. Don't believe me. It's too fast. Seeing judgment, you either believe it or you don't believe it. You're either that aware or you're going to believe it. And look at how awful that is, how unfree it is, how painful it is, all from one little moment where you saw I had a judgment and didn't pay attention to it. But that's how vulnerable a world we're in, because then it's like the sound, and then there's a thought, and if we believe that, you know, it's like... (laughs) I love the way we we even make a problem out of a good sitting, you know, because it didn't last long enough, or you know, I had one two years ago, and I'll never have that again. Or we can make a problem out of anything. And again, it's like, where do we go with that? Can we be kind with it? Can we be motivated with it? Can we be so compassionate for us all? everyone. It's so amazing how uncompassionate we are. So that, you know, when you shift to what the Buddha taught, it's like he didn't leave compassion out. It's not just kindness. You take this heart that's oriented toward kindness, the open heart, and you orient it toward pain, and you care about it. Empathetic joy. There's this openness of heart established with the metta. If you can't feel the heart, you even touch it, right? It's like, yoo-hoo, Michelle, where are you? That's how spaced out we get. That's how numb we get. Just, hi. You don't even have to feel it, but just acknowledge that somewhere it's there. Okay, hi. You can orient toward the joy in the world and appreciate it. If we leave that out, you're missing half. And then the upeka, the equanimity, it's, we'll go into it, but it's that ability to understand It's the understanding. This one takes the most understanding that things are just as they are. And it's not just things are just as they are. It's things are just as they are. (laughs) Unconditional acceptance of how things are. And we all know how to fake that. We all know how to pretend that we're okay when we're not okay. And it's not to knock it. Uh, Those of you who know me, I joke about it. If you're going in for surgery, you do not want your surgeon to not be going things are the way they are, right? I much rather have a surgeon that is like pretending to be okay than looking at, you know, opening you up and going, ah! You know, it is a little too painful today. You know, you can't, you know, it's not what you want, right? You want that person to keep it together, whether they're faking it or not. (laughs) Right? (laughs) You know, it's, it's true. And so how does that work, right? How do you... And it's, you, you, you look at the iris of the eye... And it's opening and closing. 
And that's what we're learning to do. It's like when we say, if you can't be with the pain in your knee or the pain here, wherever, it's like, or if you're with an emotion and it's too much, move away from it. Head for the hills if you have to. Don't be oppressed by something that's making you more and more aversive or more and more defeated because we're getting defeated by an imaginary war. It's an imaginary war. So you pull out because you know it's imaginary and you know you don't have to get involved in it until there's mindfulness or loving kindness. But you have to learn it. You have to, you know, I can't tell you how many times I like felt defeated by pain and you know didn't even occur to me to move away from it. I wasn't taught that. I was taught to keep going into it and be willing to die meditating at all times, you know. It's like that was my teaching. So we're offering a way of like learning how to do this with that kindness where you understand how to work with how things are. To be really honest and and it's like an honest self-assessment Am I really interested in this anger right now? Am I really able to be kind to this anger right now? If not, maybe you could try being with sound, or being with the breath, or hands, or shifting the Brahma-vihara to caring about the pain of it. So the experience that seems so much like compassion but isn't, is pity, self-pity, pitying others, grief, sorrow. The opposite is cruelty. Some people might think, oh, I'm not cruel. Listen to your thoughts for like an hour and you'll get how cruel at least you are to yourself. And that we can understand that any time we see that, that we can go, oh, something painful. Oh, I can care about it. Or not. It's like a couple years ago I had shingles. I still, whoa, that was painful. And um, a monk, you know, and I didn't, my attention got called there Constantly. It was excruciating. And I wasn't interested in that pain, I'd say, for five and a half weeks. There was no interest. And I was even surprised by it. It's like you'd think you could manifest a little interest. Uh Uh-uh. And so I just moved away from it and went to hands, you know, sounds, loving kindness. But I mean, to bring my attention in there, no way. And really be with it. And then at some point, I was interested in it. It was fine. There were times when, you know, there's that judgment, right? I probably have that extra judgment of like, oh, you're a meditation teacher, you've been sitting for, you know, blah, 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 blah. I have that added thing, you know, but it's just another rap, right? It's just another thought. And um, I have to say, I could have really suffered during that period. But I didn't that much from because I didn't buy into it. There's no need to push yourself into something so painful because there's the rest of the universe to pay attention to. There's plenty of things happening in the present moment. And the good news is that don't worry about it. There's always something else painful to pay attention coming down the road, right? It's not like you have to go, oh no, I've lost my chance to be with something painful, right? You know, it's like, oh, (laughs) big mistake. You know, it's like, it's unbelievable how, again, how hard we can be on ourselves. Hmm. 
the Buddha taught that it's the overwhelm we feel in the face of suffering that is the proximate cause for the appearance of compassion. What an amazing teaching. So anytime you feel overwhelmed in the face of any suffering or pain inwardly or any outwardly, anytime you're like, whoa, that's too much, that's your ticket to compassion. Anytime you have that thought, oh, this is too much, it's like, Little bells should go off, ding, 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 ding. Oh, a reminder, it's like, oh, maybe I could try caring about this. Not drowning in it, not going into it too deep, not stepping too far back. It's a practice. It's just like the happy Sayadaw's hand with the body just going, hmm, metta, metta, metta. Well, it's like, With compassion, you don't even have to touch the body. That's what I mean by the shingles. I could bring my attention back here and care about it, but I just didn't bring it deep inside or I was going to drown in it. So I just kept my attention out here and cared about it and then cared about my whole body and shifted to other sensations. But I didn't feel like I had to go in and drown in it. And you don't have to practice with like, if you don't have to wait for terror or, you know, wait for rage or, you know, it's like you don't have to wait for extreme physical pain. It's helpful to actually try compassion with, you know, maybe a little bit less intensity so that, you know, by the time you're willing to like go, oh, maybe I feel overwhelmed now, (laughs) maybe I should try it, it's too hard. All you have to do is go outside even and just see like, you know, the robins fighting over worms or, you know, it's just like there's plenty of suffering out there. But it might be like, maybe you see the oyster catchers and the uh, eagles fighting over some like clam or, you know, it's just like, it it doesn't have to be that intense to like, just care about that. You, you don't have to pick sides, which I've done most of my life. Like, who do I want to get that? The, the oyster catcher or the eagle? You know, it's like, what? You know, predator, prey, predator, prey. It's like, compassion, 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 compassion. It can get to the point where we say sometimes, give me all the pain in this world. I want to care about it. Give me all the joy in this world. I want to appreciate it. Let's sit for a minute. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.